What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Real Bodybuilding Podcast. This is episode number 146, and I'm here with the world-renowned guru coach, Hani Rambod. How are you, sir? Good, bud. How are you, bud? Uh, listen, we've been trying to do this for months, maybe? No, years. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're finally making it happen, and I'm, I'm happy. I'm glad to talk to you, man. I always, I always like talking to you, but um i've had other coaches on and the com the the question of coaching has always come up on the podcast and who the greatest coach is and i always say honey is the greatest coach so you are i know compliment dude i listen i know coaches uh, coaching is a very individual thing and each coach is the best coach for a certain person but overall honey you have definitely set yourself apart so i wanted to have you on to ask you a bunch of questions about why and how and your business and moving and all the other new things that have gone on in your life. So um, let's start from, I want to start from the beginning though. How did you obtain the knowledge to be as good at coaching as you are? Like, where does it come from? Is it schooling? Is it experience? Is it, where is it, where does it come from? Uh, It's a combination of a lot of things, but I think the number one thing is experience, you know, working with a lot of athletes and being able to work with athletes on, at a very young age, uh, helped me quite a bit being able to get the, the, the know-how to be able to appreciate like a woman that was trying to lose 20, 30 pounds all the way to somebody who was trying to get ready for a show. It's a big difference, but being able to work with lots of different types of athletes, men, women, um, even teenagers, as I was a teenager growing up being so into bodybuilding at a young age, I just want it as like a dry sponge. So I learned so much from so many different people. But um, on the personal training aspect, I learned from a guy named Joseph Bruno, who was very big into a, um, a Dr. Joseph Bruno, was a PhD from, from Notre Dame. And all of the biomechanics and everything that they taught, that he taught, was off of Arthur Jones' principles. So I got to take some pieces of that. Then I got to take some pieces from other things that I learned as going out high volume versus hit and all of these things. And then kind of building programs and obviously my education i focused a lot on uh, biochemistry biology the ner- with an emphasis in neurophysiology so you, it taught me how to read clinical studies and it taught me a lot of the basics on how to be able to take clinical studies and try to decipher them so whether it's about supplements whether it's about training whether it was about any of those things so that you can be able to understand the science behind whether it's the training clinicals or whether there was the supplement clinicals to really be able to better decipher those those messages yeah what so you said you were interested in bodybuilding at a young age how old are you now 47 47 when did you start getting involved in bodybuilding as far as your own interests well uh when i got my mom got me a gym membership when i was 13 years old oh, so you started really young yes yes and- I, started, I found a gym i found the gym a local gym that my mom gave me a membership to for the pool area yeah. in the back of the gym and she expected me to go to just use the pool and then i found my way into the gym and in the san jose area there's a ton of samoans and okay. the samoan said come on in here come train with us and then yeah. next thing you know i'm doing incline bench i'm training i'm starting to eat like them they yeah. eat a lot of food yeah, and yeah. it was one of those things that the reason why i did it was because i wanted to get into football i wanted to become my freshman year i wanted to go for my eighth grade summer to my freshman year, I wanted to be able to play football and American football, you know, the guys are much, much taller than me and mm-hmm. they're much bigger. So I was able to create a better results with weight training in terms of being able to make up for the height and the size with strength. 
So yeah. I was able to get my, my strength up my freshman year. And so when I went into it, I was able to, you know, get starting, you know, I, I was able to start and everything uh, my first year because of all the weight training. Did you play football all through high school? All through high school, all four years. Were you weight training that whole time too? Absolutely. I started weight training to be able to play football. Yeah. And then I got more into the bodybuilding because I've met bodybuilders that were in their twenties and thirties and even forties when I was at the gym. So the more I was able to do bodybuilding, the more I was able to kind of decide that eventually as a teenager, I wanted to compete. So what, when did your first competition happen? Uh, I did an ABA show. Uh, I think I was like 19 and so I did good. my first show and it was a Southern California show with the San Diego championships. I literally only had a couple of people in the teenage class down there, yeah. but I was hooked. I was like 140, maybe five pounds wait, wait, wait first, and I was natural. Sorry to interrupt you. So you had a couple people in the show, so you were already coaching some people. No, no. I had a couple, there was a couple, only had a couple of competitors against me. Oh, you're only people could compete with you. Okay. So this is after football now. So you're 19. So high school's over football's done. And right. you were like, okay, right. I'm going to try to do bodybuilding now. Right. I wanted to compete myself. I was helping people simultaneously because I was working yeah. at 24 hour fitness right out of high school. And yeah. there were some people that were competing. One of them had just gotten done, um, competing, uh, doing shows and I, you know, people in there that I just became friends with, but they became lifting partners. Hmm. Then there was an older gentleman who was kind of a master's guy. I think he was about 40 and he was planning on trying to do a natural show, but he had great genetics and he was training with me and he said, Hey, do you mind helping me out here with my contest prep? Because yeah. we started training a little bit together and he was my first kind of full fledged contest prep client. And he, I said, what show are you doing? And he says, I'm doing an ABA show. That's how I got introduced to ABA in the very beginning. I don't even know if they're still around or not. Yeah. But um, he was going to do a show in Nevada. And so I, he's like, I'll fly you out. You help me. I went out to Nevada. We went to, it was in Laughlin, Nevada. And uh, he ended up winning the whole show. And it was funny because I'm like, how are you doing a, a Nevada state show? But we live in California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but it was just to call the Nevada state, but they didn't care if you were a resident of a different state. And we flew out there. He got ready. He ended up winning the show. He won the overall. And it was kind of like I was hooked as a coach. And then right after that, then I started you know, competing too. I was just going to ask, so helping somebody win and then doing your own show soon after that, which one was more rewarding for you? And how did how'd you do at your show? Sorry, I didn't catch that part. I, I took second. And um, it was there was no class weight classes at the time yeah. because it was just yeah. teenage. So I got outweighed by about 30 pounds. I was in much better condition, yeah. but he was, he was much bigger than me. And then afterwards he came up to me and he said, you know, I felt like uh, you should have won because your face is so sucked in and everything yeah. else. And I said, well, you're bigger than me. And he says, yeah, but I was telling my dad that you should have won and he didn't believe me. And I said, Oh, you know, who's your dad? And he says, he's the, he's the judge on the left. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> <laughs> oh, a so little uh, bit yeah. unfair advantage there. <laughs> little, little bit. Little bit. And needless to say, that was my last ABA show. That was my last show I did with them after that. How many and then shows? I went to the NPCs. Yeah. How many and shows did you do NPCs. after that? Uh, I did about three or four shows after that in the um, NPC uh, at the natural uh, Ironman naturally in Culver city. So John Lindsay shows mm -hmm. those, I did those, um, you know, Previous winners were like Skip LaCour, um, you know, a couple of other big, really names. Um, Jerome Ferguson ended yeah. up winning. <laughs> and yeah. again, at the time, it's like, how natural really were you really? It's yeah. kind of hard to say. Yeah. Because uh, at the time, it was a, 
a way it was a um, polygraph test right oh really and so yeah yeah so it was one of those things that i was probably one of the few people that was actually natural <laughs> but uh it was one of those things i got as high as second place uh yeah. for my um npc show and uh the classes were really big some of those yeah. classes were like 15 13 15 guys yeah. and we yeah. had these rivalries in the gym and it was great i loved it i was going to uc santa barbara at the time and I ended up doing those shows because it was only an hour and a half drive from Santa Barbara to LA. So how many, so you did a bunch of shows there and then what happened? Why did you decide not to compete anymore? Or like, what was it that made you decide just to, yeah. Yeah. So what ended up happening was I was coaching people at the same time. And one of the people, one of the clients I had was a director of Microsoft and he's a good friend of mine. He was in my wedding. He's an older gentleman named John Witte. He, uh, I think he just turned 69 and, um, great guy. He's like a, like, a, like, a, he's like a family member to me and kind of like Paul is with you, you know, yeah. and he looks like your dad, you know, yeah, yeah. so old Paul, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he's going to love that one. <laughs> you know, we got to throw it into Paul. Yeah. You know? Um, but, uh, but all in all, he ended up as a bonus. He said, Hey, I was getting him ready for a photo shoot that he was having with his wife and he looked great. He was so happy. He said, Hey, honey, I want to take you to um, our trip to Mexico, to Cabo. Yeah. And I said, that's great. He says, you and whoever you want. And I was dating this girl at the time who was the managing the gold's gym in San Jose. And I looked over to her and I said, Hey, do you want to go to Cabo? And she's like, you know, you don't have to ask me twice. Let's go. Yeah. So it was an all expense bonus trip. Well, we get to Cabo, and the first night, we do some drinking. We go to El Squid Row, which is kind of like the known hangout there. Mm -hmm. uh, Cabo Wabo, which was Sammy Hagar's uh, gym, um, gym uh, his bar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And had some drinks, went dancing, and I was dancing with the girls, Dayton, and she was, like, leaning over me. She was a lot taller, she was taller than I am. Yeah, and uh, she was leaning over me, and then I was leaning back, and I was doing my Matrix move, and <laughs> showing off my moves. <laughs> my knee pops. No, I just pops. Felt like my kneecap went from the front of my knee all the way behind my leg, oh and I just God. collapsed. I collapsed. I'm like, oh man, like it felt like I got shot. And oh. they pick me up. The security guys come over, pick me up. They're like, "Are you okay?" I think that one of them thought that I might have got stabbed. Yeah. Right, like something yeah. happened because it was just like all of a sudden, yeah. and I'm like, no, something's wrong with my leg. And then all of a sudden, my knee starts swelling up. And then they they carried me into a van. I got back to the hotel, iced it, and they got me some crutches. I went and saw a Mexican doctor, and the next day, and um, and he says to me, um, he looks at it and he's like, and he shakes his head like this, and he just says. Uh, no bueno, senor. No bueno. <laughs> and I was like, okay, my broken Spanish, I know, yeah. you know, it's not good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so then he tried to, he says, you need to get a MRI, yeah. um, you know, when you get back home. And it was the first night of our actual, um, our whole weekend, yeah, our, yeah. our four or five day vacation. Yeah. It happened the first night. And then after that, I, he tried to shoot me up with Newbane. Okay. And, um, and I was like, no, no, I don't, I don't need any painkillers. Uh, just, just some, t uh, I think they gave me ibuprofen. Sure. And then it was funny because I just remember they, it was injectable in your brain. I'm like, oh no, no, I know about that stuff. I've heard of yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, nightmare, nightmares about it. Yeah. And I just iced it, sat by the pool for four days, got home, MRI'd it. They said, you yeah, tore my ACL. And what? so wait a that's, minute. So you, that's, yep. You stayed for the four days mm -hmm. in pain and agony and just. Iced it and you, elevated it. That's it. But you couldn't watch. You walk, so you're on crutches the whole time too. 
That's right. Did you do we a lot of drinking? Out. I was just kidding. You didn't do any drinking to like alleviate the pain? You know, I'm not a big drinker. And even yeah. back then, you know, I probably had a couple of drinks here and there, yeah. but I just popped some Advil, probably had a couple of margaritas by the pool and just made the best of it. The pain, because of the numbing, you know, as, as things swell, I think it just became just more of yeah. a burden because you could just feel the inflammation because it swelled it swelled up so much. And so I just wrapped it and then just kept ice on there just to numb it. And so I just kind of pretty much iced it the whole time. How was your mindset? Were you, did it depress you at all? Were you like, this is career ending? This is like, or were you like, you know what? It's going to be fine. I'm going to get through it. I thought I was fine. I was going to get through it. I just literally had gotten done with my show four months prior because that was around December that happened in Mexico. And my last show, I believe was in August at the Ironman. And so it was one of those things. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go home. I'm going to rehab it. I'll take care of it. It's not a big deal. And what was crazy is I went back to San Jose and somebody gave me a name, an orthopedic surgeon and said, Hey, this guy's, you know, a good orthopedic surgeon. You should go get it looked at by him. He writes a script for the MRI. I go and I ended up going over it with him and he says, okay, you tore your ACL. And I said, okay. And normal orthopedic surgeons say, well, let's schedule surgery. Yeah. Well, this guy, for whatever reason said to me, you don't need surgery. And I, and I couldn't, he said, he says, you've got very good, strong quads. Your legs are really good. Yeah. You, You can, you can go with several years without doing it. So you don't have to do it now. And to this day, it baffles me why an orthopedic surgeon wouldn't recommend surgery with a torn ACL. Okay. And so he just said, Hey, you know, just be a little bit careful when you're getting in and out of the shower because it's stability, but eventually it'll work its way out. And then whenever you decide if you want surgery or whatever, but there's people that go a long way. It was the best and the worst decision I ever made because I got so much swelling from being on my feet. And through the years I couldn't, train legs yeah. like it got harder harder and harder for me to train legs and so that you know my metabolism was suffered my knees would get really really achy my that knee would get achy and start swelling especially after a couple of years of not having an acl and then the competitive nature was just thrown to the side because of that but yeah if he would have talked me into doing it because i thought he we were just going to go into surgery and he's like no no don't worry about it it's, it'll you could just take care of it later on some people don't even get it fixed but honey knowing what you know i mean it sounded like you had a, some pretty good success coaching already or a, you know a, a, attained some knowledge already didn't you think i got to get it done anyways or did you just believe him to be gospel no i thought he was gospel you gotta remember i was like 23 24 and yeah. i went to an orthopedic surgeon and I honestly didn't want to go under the knife if I didn't have to, because I've never had surgery before. So, yeah, but wouldn't you think like, I mean, I guess at 23, 24, I, I would be in the same position where you'd be like, okay, well, this guy knows what he's talking about. But I would think to myself, how am I going to train again? If it's not attached, you know well, what I mean? I was able to train. I just wasn't able to train those probably Level. seven tenths. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I couldn't, I couldn't squat 315 like I was squatting before. I was barely doing 135, 185, yeah, and even yeah. sometimes 225. But it was one of those things where you don't have, feel secure because you don't have that stability because it's more of a stabilizing yeah. uh, uh, issue. And so the, as the years progressed and I was continuously coaching, I just focused more on my coaching at that point because I always knew that's one of the reasons why I didn't take drugs. Because yeah. I always knew my, my genetics were limited. So I didn't want to go out there and just load up 
You know, my dad had a form of cancer. My mom had leukemia when I was growing up. There was things that happened with me that I went through that I made those decisions that I'm not going to go take a bunch of growth and do this and do those things because you don't know about cell replication. And those sure. are things that I did know even at that age. So yeah. that's why I said, if I'm going to do anything, I'm going to wait till I'm 25. Well, I tore my ACL at 22, 24. So I never got to that point. So I knew it was never going to be a career for me. So yeah. I was a much better coach than I was a competitor. That's a lot of foresight for somebody at that age. Cause most guys would have been like, I'm going to take what I need to take to, to get where I need to get. So, um, what did your parents think? What did, what did you, cause a lot of people have trouble, you know, their parents don't want them to be in the bodybuilding world. What did your parents think when you were coming up and you left football and you started competing and training and all that? They thought I was crazy. You know, okay. they thought I was crazy. Yeah. My, my dad didn't even like me playing sports in high school because he comes from an athletic background. He was a chairman of physical education in Kuwait where I was born. And also the same thing with Iran. And my mom was a teacher. And so you come from a coaching and teaching background. My dad was a coach. My mom was a teacher. And so they were like, you're going to be tired. And if you're tired, you're not going to be able to study. And at the time I was going into pre-med at UC Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. So they were very concerned that if you're dieting for these shows while you're at UCSB, how are you going to remember organic chemistry, calculus, all of physics, all of these things? They're already hard and yeah. you're depleted because they saw me do the prep when I was 19. I was in junior college and they saw I was a zombie. I yeah. did the two hours of cardio a day. I did zero carbs for weeks just to see what had happened. So I've experimented on myself with a ton of these diet principles to yeah. see how you, you know, how far you could take the human body and to the point where I was hallucinating. Yeah. Is that what they, is that what they wanted you to do? They wanted you to be a doctor? Always. You're Persian parents. You're either a doctor, a lawyer, <laughs> or something, right. you know? <laughs> you come from when Middle did, Eastern parents. When did you leave the Middle East? I was two. You were two. A year, yeah, I was like one and a half. I think we came over. We did this. I was born in Kuwait. My parents left Iran in, in the mid-70s, um, early 70s. I went to, um, in mid-70s, I was born in Kuwait when my parents were both in Kuwait. And my mom was teaching... Um, math at the Iranian school and my dad was uh, coaching and was part of the physical education program in Kuwait. That's why I have an Arabic first name, yeah. but my, both my parents are both from Iran. So a lot of people pronounce it Hani in the middle of yeah. the Middle East, as yeah. you know, yep, and yep. then in Farsi and in English, everyone says Hani, you know, there's no wrong way, but everyone, you know, the natural way is Hani. How do you pronounce my name? Yeah. But when they came over, I was literally a year and a half old. And uh, originally they came through New York and yeah. before they moved to California. So you didn't, obviously you, you adjusted fine because you were just growing up in America. It wasn't a big deal for you growing Correct. up in, where did you grow up? You grew up in New York or did you move to California? Like in your early years? No, in New York, we were just there. Uh, there's, I think my second birthday, uh, there's a pictures of me. We were in Queens, New York, and yeah. they got hit with a really bad snowstorm yeah. that year. I think it was a, it was the winter of 77. And my dad went to go visit some friends in California yeah. And then he called my mom and says, pack your bags. We're going to move. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck this. We're out of here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly what they said. They said, Fuck this. We're out. The weather here is amazing. And yeah. so, you know, went, picked up by myself and my mom brought us back to the Bay Area. And I grew up in the San Jose area my entire life up until about seven months ago when we moved to Dallas. Did you experience any hardships growing up in California as a Middle Eastern kid? Because I'm right, and the reason I ask is this: growing up in Windsor, uh, you know, I was born I was born in Canada, so 
you know, I didn't know what it was like to come from Lebanon to Canada, but I was like the only brown kid in my grade school. So I always felt a little bit different. Did you have any of that or was it pretty like mixed growing up? It's uh, the Bay Area is very mixed. We have a big Asian population. There's some a little bit of Indian, some Middle Eastern. But you got to remember, I'm a bit older than you. And during that time, there was that whole Iran hostage thing had happened. There's a lot of different things going on. So I'm fair skinned for being Persian. Yeah. And so a lot of people are like, oh, are you Italian? <laughs> you, <laughs> you, know, got away, you, you got away with it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, it's just that people would be like, whatever. But yeah. but I think that it was funny because some of the people would literally pretend that they were Italian, you yeah. know, because they at the time there was a lot of hate yeah. towards Iran. Yeah. And yeah. so, uh, you know, we didn't have to do that, but I knew people and friends that did. Yeah. And when we were, when I was growing up, I was a bit insulated because I was so young, but I did hear stories of people saying, Hey, look, I was, you know, the teenagers and the people that were in college, they're yeah. like, F you, F you, F you, you know, because yeah. of what, whatever was going on politically. Yeah. Yeah, and um, so, yeah, but it was definitely, I would say a much more of a melting pot where I was versus mm-hmm. where you were. Yeah. It was definitely much more of a melting pot. Yeah. Um, I want to fast forward to the main, this is the main question I, I want to get, I want to get to is you have a lot of experience in coaching. You started really young and I know the X's and O's are very, very important, but what is in your opinion, what is your main attribute as a coach? What, what sets you apart from the other coaches? If you had to, I know it's kind of like a loaded question because you don't want to, obviously you want to show some humility, but if you could point to something on your own, what would you say? I think it's really simple. I think that as you know, cause we work together. Mm-hmm. Right for many you years. Spit out your coffee. You don't, <laughs> <laughs> you're like, don't remind me. Don't remind me. <laughs> no, those were some of the best. Honestly, those were some of the best. That was some of the best progress I ever made. Was in the the four years or three years we worked together. I mean, yeah, there was one. Was... There was one off season where I literally went from, you know, uh, I don't know what the analogy would be, but I went from like a just a, kind of a new pro to I can kind of stand on stage with a lot of different people. And uh, that was one off season where kind of things just turned around. But I know what I think your best attribute is, and we'll discuss it after. But I want to know what you think. If you had, to I think it. If I had to really break it narrow down, it down, yeah, it's really because I just try to critically think of all of the different things that are super important, like the training, the nutrition. I really try to emphasize as much of that base as possible mm-hmm. to try to evaluate that and then glue it together with the attention to detail yeah. i think because i don't have a huge i've never had a lot of people under mm-hmm. my roster mm-hmm. so when i do go in i'm able to go deeper into those rabbit holes to be able to make sure that i'm connecting with the athlete on a personal level uh you know making sure that we have to figure out is there financial hardships there's a person can i help them with their sponsorship can i help because all of those things are what i consider the glue and the foundation that makes things better and easier so it creates less friction and i think that i think of all of those things where a lot of the other coaches are just looking at maybe one or two different attributes i'm looking at every single one that is needed for those ingredients to make that special that special recipe i was gonna say you know what that's a better answer than mine (laughs) i um that no that's actually a point i never thought of that does make a lot of sense now that i think about it but i was gonna say um a lot of your value and you, I think you, I think you took offense to this before when I said it to you when we were working together, you're able to get the most out of your athletes. And I think that's your biggest attribute. It's not the diet you gave me. were never like, 
people think it's some special secret sauce and they're they're not okay. it's like it's still fish and rice or whatever you know what i mean mm-hmm. um so i didn't think it was anything technical i thought it was more mm-hmm. the way you speak to your athletes you're able to just get more out of them and every athlete is different and i don't i don't like i'm assuming you had a different technique for each person yeah. um and now that you add what you said that makes even more sense because I think if you know your coach coach is looking out for you in those different areas that you mentioned, you're probably going to give a little bit more. Uh, and, and if they're taken care of, then you can also focus on what you're doing. So what is it that, do you know that about yourself? Do you know that there's a mental aspect that you, do you practice that? Or is that just something natural that you do? Like what I'm trying to say is it, is it a conscious decision? Like I have to talk to this person this way to get the most out of them. No, it's not a conscious decision. It's just part of my personality. I think that it was something that wasn't coached into me. Mm -hmm. It was just me understanding. And I think that's why, excuse me, the the balance between my mom's personality of being super hypercritical Mm -hmm. and my dad, who's the charming, charismatic one. um, I'm sorry. There you go. Um, The, what ended up happening was I learned from both of them and I had, you know, some of those, both of those different aspects in my DNA. And I felt that what I really care a lot about yeah. who I work with and what, and as you, you know, could probably attest to, yes. Yes. I, I, I really do. And so I think the people I've worked with, you, Seth Ferrosi, Phil Heath, like I think some of those, maybe some of those values that mm-hmm. I had maybe might've pulled out some of those in all of my athletes as well, because I think that gave them perspective, which maybe they didn't have before me. Mm -hmm. And I think as now you have your own supplement company, you're doing your podcast, you got a lot of these things. So you got to put yourself in the shoes of the people you're working with. And there's times where you have to balance that. And I think as a coach, you have to turn around and be therapist part-time, but you also got to be a coach, a nutritionist, a trainer, you know, a financial advisor, all of these things, whatever you need, a marriage counselor, a lot of these things that go along with bodybuilding, because bodybuilding is not a, you know, two hour a day type of sport. It's a, it's a lifestyle and you have to be able to create as less, the least amount of friction possible in that person's life to be able to try to get them as far as possible. So I feel that all of those things that I learned as I was working with multiple personalities, multiple people, I've worked with some really, really difficult personalities. And then people, some people that are super easy to work with because they were much more coachable. And I think the coachability aspect comes from a couple of different character issues. If they've been working with coaches in the past, Phil had somebody that coached them, whether, you know, basketball coaches. So it was much easier. If you're working with somebody who hasn't been in a coached sport, it becomes much more difficult or those people that quote unquote know it all. So then you're like, why are you asking me if you know it? So I think all of those things determined what my path of least resistance was with working with people and then understanding that I fine tuned it. So Mm -hmm. when I work with people, everyone says, oh, you cherry pick or they say this or that. Of course I do, because I'm not going to pick, bring somebody on somebody who I don't feel is going to work in the same with the same core values as I have. If they're not going to be able to work on that same level or that same yeah. frequency. But I want to be able to bring somebody who's going to be able to work together. So just to touch on that, because you brought it up, I, I was going to actually ask you about this anyways. People have said that. Ohani cherry picks. He he looks for mm-hmm. the greatest physique ever, and then that's the person he wants to coach. How do you 
what exactly do you have to like? Because if you look at your roster, I mean, your mm-hmm. roster's your roster's endless, right? But some of the biggest mm-hmm. names, you know, Phil, mm-hmm. Seth, uh, Nicole Wilkins, uh, Jay, 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 in 09, like the mm-hmm. list goes on and on. So, mm-hmm. what do you say to somebody who says, Well, you pick the guys with the best genetics, and that's why they turned out so good? Well, it's not the best genetics. There's a lot of people that came to me that had even better genetics than my athletes. Mm-hmm. It was number one. Nowadays, I don't have amateurs because I'm focused on Evagen, right? Yes. So I'm working so much on that. That's so I'm not, I have to compartmentalize my time. Sure. So I can't just work with everybody. So that's why the people that they're seeing, I'm working with celebrities, I'm working with businessmen, I'm working with a lot of other people that people don't see because they don't want to be featured, sure. nor does my audience really care about those people, sure. but they care about the relationship that I have with them. So I still work with them and they don't want to be called out for whatever reason. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, like I said, my audience doesn't really much care about those people, mm-hmm. but they don't see is that the last 20 years of all the people that I did work with that just went from a first time competitor to maybe just turning pro. And then they just hung it up. Okay. There's some people that were like that. And then they were, they maxed out there or they maxed out at a local show or they maxed out at a regional show. And I was able to get them further, but those people are not highlighted. They're not on the highlight reel because it was before social media. So you got, and people didn't want to read about those in flex magazine or an MD. So those people are, everyone just focuses on the top people because those are the people that were focused on in the magazines and in the media in general. So again, I've worked with all of those people. And then the people that I do choose right now, I work with a lot of people in regards to off season before pre-contest and I don't allow them to come to pre-contest with me. if I don't feel that we're meshing well. And so there's been times where I would work for somebody for just a couple of weeks, didn't feel like it was a good fit. And I just said, Hey, this is not working out. And I just don't feel like the personalities are not matching. We're not jiving. We're not on the same frequency. And I decided to go ahead and just let that relationship go and go from there because I want to be able to jive with the person because you're going to end up going into literally battle together. Yeah. And there's no better person than you because we were at the Ironman. We were at you know those shows. I can't remember what it was called then. It was at the it Flex, was a Pro. Flex Pro. Yeah, yeah, right. It was okay. called the Flex Pro. It used to be the Ironman, but they called it the Flex Pro. And yeah. we were there, eating in the room, talking about things, going over things, going over whatever we were doing at that moment for the next two hours. But we were talking about what we were going to do right after the show. Yeah, and how yeah. we're going to try to grow into a rebound. So all of those things, you can only be methodical with somebody who's on that frequency that you're on to be able to talk at that level. And yeah. you need to be able to get really deep in those conversations with people. Do you think that your mental connection and extra extra intent with your athletes on the financial side, on the mental side, on their relationship, whatever's going on in their life, do you think that's what took somebody like a Phil Heath and Nicole Wilkin, uh, uh, Jay, do you think that's what takes them from good to great or great to amazing? Like, do you think that's the difference between, because it's like you said, there's a lot of guys with good genetics and there's a lot of coaches that help these guys that have great genetics, but there seems to be a different look with your athletes. Why is it not the, it's not the financial aspect, Flood, what it is, or, or any of those aspects. It's figuring out the why in that person. Yeah. What's, what's their why? Meaning why what? are they doing this? Like, yeah. what is their trigger point? Like, let's talk about like Jay, right? Yeah. You mentioned Jay. Jay yeah. on 09, him and I started talking after the Olympia in 08 when he lost to Dexter because he wanted to try something new because things weren't working out right with Chris and whatever that formula was or whatever he tried. 
Yeah. It just, he wanted to try something a bit different. Mm-hmm. So he was triggered. So I was emotionally dialed into what he wanted at the time, which is to prove himself. So he was willing to do things outside of his normal scope of cardio, the diet, all of these things. And I wrote him like Zorro because I knew I could ride that emotional energy and angst into success. If he can be able to make sure to cross the T's and dot the I's of the diet, the training and everything else. He flew to San Jose the week I was supposed to have surgery for my knee. Finally. Yeah. It was the week. It was the week of my birthday and it was 10 years later. So going back to the earlier story, yeah, yeah. I was, you know, and that was 2000, I tore my knee. Uh, it was December 2000, I tore my knee. And then in 2009, January, I was supposed to have the knee surgery. Mm-hmm. He says, well, I'm, I'm going to come to San Jose to come and train with you. Well, of course, me, Honey Rambo, the trainer, on the <laughs> surgery. <laughs> I called up, I canceled the surgery. <laughs> so I didn't get it fixed until like three or four years later. And yeah. then I finally got it fixed. But that was because everybody came first. If I could get a chance to be able to make a difference to that degree where, again, we were able to make history together. No one's ever lost to Mr. Olympia and was able to win again in the open class. And that would happen that year. And he came in with one of the arguably one of the best factories ever. But it was because of that mental fortitude that he created because of what happened with the loss. And it slingshot him because he, I realized with every person, there's a why. And that why can change too. Yeah. Depending on how long you work with somebody, okay, Phil is just, you know, as an anomaly because he went through so much with his dad passing away, going through a divorce, his, you know, his ex-wife being sick, all of these things that he just didn't focus on. He like, he just said, look, this is life, but I'm still going to continue to train hard. I'm still going to yeah. be able to, to create a physique that is going to be exceptional. And he didn't use that as a crush or an excuse. And I think the biggest thing that we have in our industry is everybody wants to be the victim. Okay. How do you mean that? I think that everybody wants to blame a trainer or they want to turn around and and blame a sponsor or they want to turn around. They don't like to look in the mirror and say, well, what could I have done different? Yeah. 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 And so I agree with that. that. You know, it's like start State Farm Insurance. Like a good trainer, State Farm is there. It's like people want to just say it like it's an insurance policy. Let me just talk yeah. shit about the trainer, throw the trainer on the bus, go to another trainer. I think it's become a little bit less lately because people are starting to get outed because at the end of the day, just sometimes personalities don't match up. So yeah. I just feel like I lose a lot of respect for people who try to throw the trainer on the, the bus. I feel like people really need to put a lot of understanding on what they were able to bring to the table. When you look in the mirror, were you able to cross your T's and dot your eyes? Were you able to do the cardio? Because I said, Oh, I did everything he said. Well, do you, did you really, yeah. how many people yeah. really say I didn't do everything that I was supposed to do? Yeah. And so I think that's the, one of the bigger things. So going back to the whole answer of what, what it, is it with all of these different competitors, you've got to try to figure out what their hot button is mm-hmm. and be able to try to really ride the wave so that you can focus on being able to create that momentum within the prep. And I think that I was able to do that pretty well with the different personalities that I was dealt with. And um, the other good thing about it also is that I never really focused too much on going after any clients. I always wanted them to come to me because if they came to me, that was half the battle because now I know they're willing to listen. Now I got to make sure that we can communicate on the right language in the right language. I know you, I know you did that to me. You, I knew you were pushing my buttons when you were, because <laughs> which would, time <laughs> you would call me. No, and mostly in the off season. Uh, I mean, all the time, right? But in the off season, I knew when it was happening because you would call me and you'd be like, "You're getting fat," 
<laughs> like, okay. And you would say, you would always tell me a story about Phil. It's like, it's almost like I knew you knew the story about to, Phil was going to trigger me to work harder. I would half the stories I made up, brother. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted you to get leaner because you're it, it worked though. Because honestly, I know that fucking off season, like I said earlier, that off season. But I knew it was happening. I'm like, this motherfucker is just doing. It. But I wasn't. <laughs> but I wasn't totally sure. So I'm like, I better do what he said. Um. Okay, I want to ask you a question about Phil because you brought him up. So, why is Phil so misunderstood? Ooh, that that's a very complicated question. But the short answer to that is the fact that Phil got he got villainized with yeah. Generation Iron. That was one of the major things. I, I remember going into it, yeah. a mall. That was part of it. That was the yeah. beginning. And I think he got villainized because he was, they love you, then they hate you, then they love you again. Yes. It's just a matter of how many years is that going to happen? I think that people are starting to really understand the, the, the Phil now. Yeah. And the biggest thing that's misunderstood about Phil Heath is that he's an assassin. He's yeah. a person that is very focused on killing other people's dreams to try to create his own mm -hmm. and they don't like to hear about those things when it's coming unfiltered mm -hmm. or seeing certain things and i feel that what's happened with phil it would be like john wick okay i love watching john wick movies you like john wick movies yeah 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 okay yeah, of course but if I, but if i knew john wick personally that'd be a scary motherfucker yeah okay and and that's Phil Heath is John Wick. Okay, but let and me that's when it comes to those things. So I'm saying is that it's when his personality, that edge, that drive, that determination was very unfiltered because he was the first social media or one of the first social media I champions. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I feel like a lot of that became misunderstood because people already had a thought of, hey, wait a minute, Phil Heath already comes across as arrogant because of Generation Iron when they told him. It was a it was a documentary that was basically kind of made into a docudrama. Yeah. And they said, act a certain way. We want you to kind of play a, an Arnold type role. So a lot of that was coached into what they wanted people to perceive. No, none of no one knew that it was going to turn into this kind of like he's a jerk. He's an absolute stigma, arrogant. Yeah. He's a, the yeah. stigma exactly. Yeah. And I feel that that's what kind of stuck with them. And then when they just saw him do his job. And because it was so unfiltered because of the fact that he was just focused on doing what he needed to do for the Olympia stage, this other stuff wasn't set. The stage wasn't set yet for people to understand social media like they do now. Mm -hmm. So people go, hey, let me, let me do outreach. Let me talk to connect people. Let me connect. Let me do this. All the things that he's doing now, those things weren't really invented yet. Nobody had really done those things yet. So it was more of just a showcase at yeah. that time that was more unfiltered, I feel. Okay, so I'm just gonna I'm gonna play devil's advocate a little bit. Okay. So and I, I'm not gonna make this whole thing about Phil. I just want to ask one more question. Because sure. you touched on it being unfiltered, but I think Jay was unfiltered as well. So why was well, I don't want to say he was unfiltered, but Jay was also an assassin. Would you say? No, no, not Jay, like, Jay not like Phil? No, no. No, okay, they explain. have completely, completely different. So Phil was a assassin when it came to the fact that 
he put himself in a mindset when he'd go to the gym at midnight or two o'clock in the morning. And he, he, if you speak to Phil, he'll talk to you for an hour. He goes to see his fans. He'll talk to them for five or 10 minutes. Why does no, but why does nobody see that? Like, why does, why doesn't he show that? Like, I know he shows it more now, which I think a lot mm-hmm. of people appreciate because like, Oh, Phil's right. actually a nice guy. So mm-hmm. I think people, I think people like that. Because, because think about it. Why, why is not why isn't that not being highlighted? Because the highlights used to come from Flex Magazine. They used to come from media. Now there's none of that. So yeah. unless you have a supplement company like you and I do, you don't have that person walking around with them 24-7 going to the trade shows. You'll hear about it from people, but yeah. no one's highlighting that. So sure. it's going on. So if you ask people, that's how he is, but it's not being highlighted. And when it used to be highlighted, it's when the magazines were prominent and it was always written about, but it wasn't something yet had been yeah. put in effect on social media. So sure. he's never had a social media advocate before. Yeah. I'd like to, I'd like to talk to him. I'd like to have him on a podcast one day just to talk to him. Cause that's a, I don't want to make this podcast about Phil, but there's a lot of interesting questions that come from that. It's, it's yeah. And again, I- I'm not speaking for Phil and again, no, no, guys, I know. I know it's not, it's just, it's just a matter. And I apologize for this bobblehead looking thing because we had to set up this tripod and it's, I feel like it's like a bobblehead. You look great. Stop worrying about. (laughs) Yeah, no, I look like a, just so everybody knows who's just, just so everybody knows who's watching. Hani had a very professional setup before we got on, but it didn't work with my setup. So we had to switch to his phone. Very that just saving you the, you know, so people know that you were a hundred percent (laughs) ready. Anyway, I I don't want to, you know what? I don't want to, like I said, I don't want to make this about Phil. I just, it's a real shame if Phil is has always been the guy he is now, and nobody ever knew that. That's a, it is a shame. One hundred percent. That's exactly the case because yeah. Phil is exactly who he is now. It's just that the way yeah. that it it comes across when you don't have those highlight reels shared mm-hmm. because you don't have a supplement company following you, or again, magazines have been dipping all of those things. Then what you see is the unfiltered portion because you don't have someone calling you and going, Hey man, let's go and follow you to the trade show booth. And let's make sure that we're seeing that big line with you shaking hands and doing all these things. Yeah. A lot of that stuff wasn't done. Now I'm not, and then again, the personalities are way different. Bill is a very different personality than Jay. Yeah, definitely. Jay's more cer- cerebral, right? He's a cerebral He's a business guy. He's been around for a very long time. He started competing as a teenager and everybody has their own ways of doing things. Ronnie was different than Jay. Jay's different than Phil. But at the end of the day, they're all champions, but they got their different ways. And Jay, he was also a person that I felt like he was much better at the hunt than being on the top of Mount Olympus. He was better chasing. Because he's so used to chasing and pushing Ronnie for so many years and so many second places. And so when he got to the top in 2007 and eight, I feel like those, that situation, yeah. he had it within him. But at the same time, they were trying to go from mass monsters to, to smaller, more ripped guys when, when Dexter won. Yeah. And that triggered him to saying, I got to be a big and ripped guy. Yeah. And so that triggered him. But the way that a lot of that stuff was portrayed because social media was at its infancy back then in 2008, 2009. Mm-hmm. It wasn't something that it's a, the, the, you went under a microscope like you are now. What's your, the most difficult person you ever worked with? You. I knew you were going <laughs> to <laughs> That's why you know I've got here for three years. No, and not in a bad way. It was in a very learning way. You taught me a lot of how to, how to work within personalities. I knew you were going to say because, that shit. No, no, it's not in a bad way. I don't want you to think of that. So I, I think you taught me so much on how to work because 
you are obsessed with wanting to win. You are obsessed with becoming better. And but sometimes it's really trying to focus the attention about saying, I remember we would sit there and we'd talk about pasta for 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted to talk about it. Did we? You're like, okay, yes, you call me up, bro. I think you forgot some of this stuff. Oh, I and totally like, forgot. Yeah. You're like, I like, I mean, I like the fact that we changed this because I was able to get fuller, but I think the sauce, bro, that sauce may not oh, be it. You used to get I'm mad gonna, at <laughs> because you would, you would drink, you would eat the sauce and then you would get acid reflux. And I yeah. said, bro, take out the sauce, put a little bit of olive oil. And then that way it can balance it out. And then you call me back and you're like, dude, perfect, perfect, perfect. And then you get off the phone with me and everybody who knows you really well is going to be like, this is my food. Yeah. Yeah. And then you come back and you'd be like, bro, that was it. That was the perfect thing. I looked so great. It's so amazing. It changed everything. And then two days later, you'd call me and be like, bro, bro, we got to go back to the sauce. There's something in that sauce that's really helping. It is. Because really- I was always trying to find every time we made every time we made a small change and yes. I got better. I'm like, yes. that's it. You were that's, trying. That's it. Yeah. That's it. I'm trying that's to it. eke out every little bit out of every little thing. And then I would attribute things. The thing is... I, I was kind of micromanaging, not micromanaging, but I was looking at what you were doing a, under a microscope instead of looking at the entire program. Yeah. So every time you made one little change, I'm like, that's it. That change is what did it. When really it was the entire program working together. And I just, yeah, I overanalyzed right. everything. Yeah. That's exactly it. So when you say difficult, there's a lot of people who had a lot of personality issues. They had like different things where like they would have um, just, they, you wouldn't even hear from them. They wouldn't do send in check-ins. I had guys who wouldn't even send in check-ins. So those are really hard, difficult clients. But I think that because you and I work together and we have a history together, I think the biggest thing that it taught me was try to create digestible pieces of information So and try not to overcomplicate yeah. the system. And yeah. I felt like that taught me a lot about how to work with people. Uh, you taught me a lot on how to put things in certain perspectives so that I understand steps down, how, how you're going to react to these changes or the information I'm giving you so that you don't overanalyze why I got you to switch from the step mill to the treadmill or wanted you to do bike to try to keep your legs a little fuller or try to do certain things. And then not to overanalyze, but like you said, work on macro and not micro when it comes to a lot of the things that we're working on together. But I think that it taught me a lot. But it wasn't, like I said, I've had a lot lot more difficult. It was just one of those things where I felt like with your personality, I had to figure out how to communicate with you properly so that we can get to the best result. Yeah, because I remember, I think it was at the Arnold one year, you and Paul were in my room. And I think I had left the room for something or went to the washroom or something. And you said to Paul, Paul told me after, he's like, you said to him, he's like, is he always like this? <laughs> Paul was Paul was like... <laughs> Yeah, he is. And he's like, he's like, he should smoke weed. <laughs> Paul's like, I've been trying to get him to smoke weed for years. He won't do it. Yeah. So, well, that's funny. I just, uh, yeah, I just did my personality. I just had to overanalyze and I was always trying to figure out what it was. So, okay. So that's, I get the, I get the award for most difficult, unfortunately. Who gets the award for easiest to work with? The easiest to work with. Oof. I think that I mean most people would assume it's Phil, but Phil for Phil Phil for sure because we worked so well together in regards to how many years. So he would know a lot of the things that I was going to do, 
before I did it. So I would call him up and I'd say, Hey, we're going to do this. We're going to drop the carbs to this. And he saw, you'd send the pictures at night in the morning we would talk and he goes, Oh, I thought that's what you were going to say. And it was like, I, you know, we like there would be times where we would go several months without talking because of working back and forth. And we just text instead. And there was just, he knew kind of what we were going to do because the system was so in place that he knew where he needed to look like at 16 weeks out at 24 weeks out at 32 weeks out at Mannion's guest posing show. Like there was all these milestones. So I think in that case, it definitely be Phil. Plus again, Phil's mindset. You definitely, um, anytime you get a chance to, to watch anything, any podcast he does, whether he gets on yours or, or whoever's, he's got a very good way of being able to compartmentalize issues and being able to unpack the ability to unpack those things that he knows that he can be able to have control over and make sure that he knows what the end result is supposed to be. So everything from the journey all the way down to the end result was about getting better, looking at the previous pictures, looking at being able to, because we were always chasing other versions of himself, mm-hmm. right? Oh, 2011, 2013. I remember you calling me in 2011 and you're like, holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. I remember and what it, year was it? He did the night of champions. Not Night of Champions. Uh, it was, no, no, no. It was uh, Iron Man. It was Iron, Iron Man. Man. Th- yeah, that was two thousand. That was two thousand and eight. Was it that year he looking, or was it? It was a year. Yeah, that's did- the year he grew, and then he played, and then that was the year he took. He he won the Iron Man. He took second at the Arnold a week or two later to Dexter, and then he placed third in his first Olympia. And yeah, that was I remember Dexter won. Jay took second. I remember seeing him at that Iron Man, thinking, "Holy shit!" It was just a different look altogether. And then he got even yeah. better after that, but. Um, so he was the easiest. Would, he, would you say he was the easiest in year one or two or just easiest because you'd worked with him for so long? I think in the culmination of the yeah. of all the years because yeah, yeah. it was so automatic with him. He was really ever, understood the process. Was there ever an athlete you wanted to work with that you never got a chance to? That you can think of? Probably Dorian Yates. Oh, just out of different era. Kind of thing. Yeah, different yeah. era. Yeah, during Yates, yeah. if it was a different era, because it's, he it was the person I looked up to the most when I was growing up. You know, yeah. like when I was in the early nineties. He seems when like I was be, just graduating high school. He seems like it'd be uncoachable. I don't know because I don't know how much Mike Menser and some of those things really. I don't know if anybody really needed to coach him because he just took bits and pieces of information yeah. and did it himself. Yeah. But I think that I would have just loved to see what, if there was something else we could have, you know, done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because again, I, because also as just a, a fan, well, yeah, I, yeah, know, of a course. big fan growing yeah. up on that. But in terms of modern day, I think that there's just a bunch of athletes, but again, I don't look at it under that filter. I always look at it on, do I think that we are able to connect is that a person I could connect with to be able to t- take that journey together? So, yeah. And you hear me, you know, it's not the same as just saying, I just want to coach this person. Is that person coachable or is my style going to work out with that person? So that's a really different way to look at it. Cause most coaches I would think would look at somebody like Nick Walker and be like, oh, I'd love to coach that guy. You know what I mean? Like I just, but you're looking at it more from a personality standpoint too. And uh, like there's a whole bunch of different data points yeah, before be- you. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. I look at it in so many different, you know, the data points are, is a, is a great phrase because if you don't, then you're just sitting there chalking it up to something where you're spitting in the wind. If mm-hmm. you're going to take somebody who already knows how to 
supposedly do a prep or I know what to do for this, or I know that they're always saying, I know, I know, I know. And all you yeah. prep coaches out there who's listening to this one will, will attest to this. Then if you already know, then why the fuck are you asking me? So <laughs> at the end, end of the day, don't, you know, yeah. take it in. And so I think that was one of the things that I feel like I have to be able to connect with somebody mm -hmm. first on a personal level to be able to go down that road. What is it that you see wrong currently? We've had some health issues in the industry and I know some coaches have been blamed for certain things. And that's always kind of rough with me. I don't like when people blame their coaches because everybody's an individual and everybody decides to do their own thing. Is there something you see wrong in the industry as a whole that could be better, could be done better either with coaches or with athletes? Is there something guys are doing that's not necessary that might be hurting them in some way? I think the overuse of drugs in our industry needs to be addressed. Yeah, I think we all talk about blood work. Mm -hmm. I feel like many people put their head in the sand when it comes to it. We work together. Yeah. We, um, we did blood work all the time. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And, and that was 10 years ago, 11 years, 12 years ago. Yeah. 12 years ago. Yeah. 12 years ago. And I don't feel that the new coaches out there have the best interests of a lot of these athletes in mind. I think that they become billboards and they become lab experiments. Yeah. And I feel that it's not good to be able to see so many people getting sick. And I feel that there is some different issues that are going on. I mean, some people think because of virus or because of this or that, I think there's, there's more clotting going on because of those situations. Sure. So you have to be even more on top of your blood work and make sure your hematocrit's not too high. But at the end of the day, the constant blood work needs to be given. And I feel that you can't rely on drugs to take you to the promised land. Mm. I think that, it, you know, everybody wants to know that so-and-so's steroid cycle, and that's going to make me a champion or rumor has it, this guy that's in the gym is taking this. So you should take this. Yeah, yeah. So many, so much of this bro bullshit is going on mm -hmm. that it's just become, I think, uh, tragic because a lot of people are shortening their, their careers, their health in general, uh, they're just, it's just all around negative. Mm -hmm. And as an athlete, I would really slow down, pump the brakes and try to digest the information and maybe get different perspective on things instead of just haphazardly following directions. Yeah. Because even some very prominent coaches that are out there need to also really understand you have a certain moral obligation to be able to want to try to keep your athlete as healthy as possible as well. Sure. So I just, I bumped into uh, <clears throat> a friend of mine who had a female competitor come from another coach and that female competitor was brand new, just starting out. And she was doing, she was like 19, I think 50 mm -hmm. milligrams, 50 milligrams of Anavar and 50 milligrams of Winstrol a day. This is a bikini competitor. Wow. Yeah. And I'm like, so I hear, but I hear these things all the time. I hear these things all the time. And it's also, I feel like it's worse with women, even though I do hear things from men that are like doing a thousand milligrams of trying a week and things like this. So I don't want to make this whole thing a drug discussion because I think there's more than just that. But um, is that the one thing you think coaches now are not pushing 
the health side of things enough. Absolutely. Why would a coach give those kinds of dosages or even those kinds of drugs to a bikini competitor? Yeah. Yeah. It makes zero sense. So what's this, like, what's the solution? How do we, cause we've had, we've had conversations on the podcast about solutions to health issues and there's so many different ideas. Have you ever, have you ever sat around and just considered a way or something either the IFPB could do or a different body could do to help reduce some health issues in the industry? When you say different body, you mean a third person? I mean, like if it's not, if it's not, if we're not going to put the responsibility onto the IFBB, if we're going to just, if some other governing body is going to come in and help the IFBB and say, we're going to take over this aspect, we're going to do mandatory blood work or an educational program that's going to tell people this is what you should be taking, what you not, you shouldn't be taking. Like, I just feel like there should be something for people. Like a lot of these girls, the reason I say that is, you said the coaches come in and they say, you know, it's your moral obligation. I think a lot of these coaches don't look at it that way. And a lot of the people that they're, that are looking up to them just think they must be right. Like, for example, that 19-year-old girl, she doesn't know better. She must think, well, right. if, if he told me to take 50 milligrams of Winstrol, I guess that's what I got to do. And right. so there's no education. There's no, there's nothing for people to look at and go, oh, that's not really what bikini girls take. This guy's wrong. So is there some solution somewhere that you've considered ever that could help the industry as a whole? I haven't sat down to break it down, but I know when I put my legal hat on, there's certain things that the organization may or may not want to do because yeah. now all, you're, you're connecting yourself. Sure. And I think that the best thing we can do right now is like podcasts like yourself, my podcast, things like that is being able to educate people into understanding what's high, what's low yeah. and how to go about getting blood work on a consistent manner, talking about it, discussing it, making an open forum. There's never been more talk about drugs than yeah. there has been now. True. And it's because of everybody passing away. There's a lot of different things. You speak about it. I speak about it. Seth Barossi has been talking about it. And one of the things that needs to happen is that dialogue needs to continue. How it's going to get into a structured form, I think still needs is up for debate. Sure. But I do think that there is there there can be a structured form, whether it's inside the organization or outside the organization, mm -hmm. to be able to give better guidance and understanding of what's considered acceptable. And I think that it starts with just blood work because if you're checking your blood work, that's what's going to show whether or not you're healthy or not. Yeah. But then that still may not, what's considered healthy, then you have to start breaking down because then if a girl is getting facial hair at 19 years old and she's getting a deepening of her voice, her blood work might be fine. Yeah, yeah. But she's now, now she's, she's getting male traits. That's not fine. So there has to be, those are the things that have to be discussed and broken down. But mm -hmm. I think those are still things that need to be worked out. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about Evagen. How long have you had Evagen? I started Evagen in January, beginning of this year. Uh, this following year, it'll be 15, our 15 year anniversary. So for people who don't know, if you are new to the bodybuilding world, this is Hani Rambod's Instagram page. If you're listening on audio, it's H-A-N-Y-R-A-M-B-O-D, Hani Rambod. 1.2 million followers. How'd you get that? 
I guess when you, I guess when you have like 60 Olympias under your belt as a coach, <laughs> but this is a uh, evagennutrition.com is Hani's supplement company. Um, so you've been around for, I'm sorry, what was the year you started? 2000, it'd be 15 years in, in this next, uh, 15 next years, Hani. 15 years, but I started with one product and I went really slow. But, I was know, around, I think I was, I think I was there You're, for the infancy. What do you mean you think you were there? I'm going to post up a picture of you with an Evagen shirt on. No, I have no, a picture of you I with know. an Evagen shirt. No, no, I know, <laughs> I know, I, I know I used it. But what I'm asking is, yeah. I think I was there like when you first started. Because I remember the the original Cellchem product yeah. had one formula and then you had to change it to something else. But I think I had EVP. the EVP. EVP, 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 EVP that's right. It came in any flavor you want, as long as it was great. <laughs> <laughs> but you said, but this is, it's, it's interesting though, because, you know, that's a lot of staying power, man. 15 years. Well, it's, it's been slow and steady, whether I liked it or not, because we were in a very uh, tough circumstance with California and the Bay Area, especially in Silicon Valley. So I couldn't grow because of the people that we wanted to come and work for us or the talent that we would want to bring in, it was very difficult to get to the Bay Area because of the expenses. Yeah. And so it was very, very difficult. Uh, and I think that now that we've moved, we've gotten a better, better breathing room. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things we're doing with the new headquarters. I'm building a new gym. There's a lot of things I'm able to do. But yeah, it's been 15 years. But the first, I would say half of that, it was very slow and steady. I'd only come out with one product with one flavor a year yeah. and I, it was just like one year we didn't come out with anything new because it was always 90% of my time was coaching and 10% of it was Evagen. Now it's completely reversed. 90% yeah. of my time is Evagen, 10% of it's coaching. So back then everything was super slow. It wasn't methodical. It was just as I needed something new, yeah. I felt that I could do a better formula or I could make something better out there for one of my, for athletes. I came out with it mm -hmm. and it was very slow. It wasn't like always oh, going to go do a big supplement brand. It yeah, was yeah. just, I started with a $70 non-stim pre-workout. That was yeah. my first product. But that was a better, you know what? Personally, I like that. Like that's kind of, I know it doesn't, might not look like it, but that's similar to the approach we we're taking. It's a lot slower because what you did was pretty hard to stay relevant and go at that slow at the same time. Because I don't know if it's just this day and age, but we've released a number of products, not one. And, mm -hmm. and people still are like, when's the next one coming out? When's the next one coming out? And they're not, and, and you're trying to keep up. So yeah. to have one, two, three products for seven or eight years or however long you did that is really impressive. And to be able to stay relevant at the same time. So now you've moved to Texas mm -hmm. and you're focusing all your time on Evagen. So what are we expecting from Evagen in the coming, coming years? Anything new in the pipeline that you want to, divulge yeah so we're the new headquarters is basically going to be up and ready by the end of the year um, i'm building a new gym inside our headquarters uh putting together the list of equipment that i'm putting uh for, for the gym and i'm excited because we were bottlenecked for lack of a better term for 55 with 5500 square feet for the longest time Mm -hmm. And now it's going to be a headquarters. It's going to be a gym. We have some warehouse in the back. It's going to be much more functional. 
uh, we staffed up, we've hired five or six new people. We're mm-hmm. looking to hire more yeah. so that I can be able to really try to create a better infrastructure so that we can create foundation for growth. Sure. And I've always liked Dallas. I've been coming here for the last 25 years. And that's why everyone said, well, why didn't you go to Florida? Or why didn't you go somewhere else? I've always liked the Dallas area. Yeah. I used to come out here and visit Ronnie back when I was training his girlfriend. I used to stay in Arlington. I know the whole DFW area very, very well. And I think the people of Texas are amazing. I mean, they're very hospitable people. So I didn't feel different or very shunned because we didn't know. You know, you're going into an area and it's it's new, but they've been very welcoming. So that's been nice. And um, my wife still has her store up in Northern California, her supplement okay. store up there. Okay. And so she's been running that remotely. And that's been great. And I feel that now as we come out with new products and some new flavors and we're just kind of evolving, since we started he- here in Texas the last six months, I'm considering this kind of Evision 2.0, yeah. where I have the ability now to take in some really good uh, staff members, mm-hmm. uh, employees, and we're able to really build a better sense of community because I didn't feel like we've been able to do that in Northern California yeah. because of yeah. it being so segmented. We had employees in Florida. We had some employees trickled all over the rest of the country. We had consultants. And I feel like now what we're trying to do is trying to build a better base here. Yeah, I like that idea because that's kind of how I feel being in Canada. A lot of our people that work with us or for us are all over the diff- all over the U.S. and different places. And I'm like, it'd be nice to have a base. You know, Can you touch on a little bit of how things have evolved for you over the 15 years? Yeah. The first half of the 15 years was really super organic, slow growth. I had a couple of employees. It was very slow. Mm-hmm. And it there wasn't the, I want to go out there and conquer the world type of mentality. It was products designed to take my athletes yeah. and some of the top athletes that follow me to the next level because I felt like there was a big gap. I didn't look at it for profitability or this, that. I mean, those, those are some byproducts, but you're always yeah. trying to do that. That's what I think with, with anything, like even with my training, it's all about passion first. Yes. Then you start to be able to make a profit as you go. Yes. But in the very beginning, it's trying to figure out and focus on some kind of issue out there and a solution. And I felt like whether it was my FST7 training, that was a solution to try to increase intensity with my clients working abroad. Yeah. That was that solution. Then as I started coming out with these products, it was more of a powdered and pills, you know, solution to be able to get their physique to be rounder and be able to create solutions. So as I'm doing this, all I'm doing is trying to continue that mm-hmm. without trying to go out there and, you know, conquer the world. I'm not trying to be the biggest supplement company out there yeah, yeah. at all. So that's that's what I mean. That core value of and I like what you said about passion because that's kind of where we are too. It's like the passion always has to be there first and then everything kind of grows around it. So I just absolutely it's a, a really valuable thing. Um last question, honey. I don't want to keep you forever. We've been over an hour now. I just want to know about Derek Lunsford because everybody keeps asking and he is one of your uh biggest, most popular clients is Derek Lunsford doing the open this year. We are talking about it. I think that it's one of those situations right now where he could go either way. Mm -hmm. He could, but 
is it going to be detrimental to his physique by him sucking down as we sit down and focus on trying to make a better version of himself? Meaning that he wants to eventually do what Hottie did. Yeah. And I'm not going to be one to hold him back. True. He wants to go open. He's going to go open. At the end of the day, some people think that it's about my titles of 2021. 20, 20. It doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't matter. right? <laughs> like, oh, the reason why he's going to keep him down is this. I'm going to ultimately let him make his own decision. Mm -hmm. But I feel like as we're sitting down and seeing where his physique lies at 19 weeks out, what him and I are doing, we have to really assess what the pros and cons are when it comes to every category of the financial, the the hardship of bringing the weight down. And I don't want to hold them back. Yeah. Just like I didn't haul Hottie back. I, otherwise, Hottie, I think, could have won the 212. Two, two, two yeah. But yeah. I didn't I'm add to it. But he says, I want to go for the Sandow. Sure. And he said that in Farsi. He goes, yeah. the Sandow is what the real Mr. Olympia is. I'm sorry. That's what he, that was the thing. He's like, like for him, that's his end goal. Yeah, so yeah. I'm not going to, I was going to hold him back and say, hey, suck down do 212 so that we can turn around and put a little notch on our belt. Mm -hmm. So if Derek feels the same way, we're going to go forward with it. I'm just going to make sure to present all of the information. And then he ultimately makes the decision where he wants to go. Mm -hmm. And I think here in the next couple of weeks, we have to figure that out because yeah. he's right on the cusp. So that, after, that's the big thing. After seeing him at the uh, guest posing he did with Nick and Hunter, um, mm -hmm. I don't know how you can get him to 212, man. He looks like a monster. Like what is he at right now? Two fifty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, he's 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 hovering between two forty eight and two fifty two. Like right you're now. gonna have to strip off ten pounds of muscle to get him into the two twelve. Yeah, there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> where do you think <laughs> it's? Yeah. Where do you think just to play a game? But 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 just but let me let me let me yeah. expand on that. Go ahead. We we stripped off muscle last year too. Oh, I can. I know that. Okay. And I already okay. I already know that. Like I can tell by his, I can tell by his structure and his muscularity. Yeah, where he should be. Yeah. Um, where do you think he would place at the Olympia if he was to do the Open this year? You know, I don't like being able to break it down and say, "Hey, look, guess," yeah. because it really depends on his peak. Sure. If he can peak, mm -hmm. right? There's always a little bit of chance added in to be able to peak, and if he can peak, I definitely think he can be in the top five, top six, yeah. if he peaks right. Yeah. But it's one of those, it's one of those things about being able to peak and making sure who else has peaked or who hasn't peaked. Because I feel like a lot of open gets flack right now because not everyone's really peaking. Yeah, and I feel that that's why everybody's so upset about the open and saying we need to take the conditioning to a whole nother level. This is what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. For I mean that we'll say that for another podcast. Yeah, yeah. But I think that what really it comes down to is you got guys like Hunter, Ian, Nick, Hottie, I mean, even Brandon Curry, yeah. um, our, our current Mr. Olympia, because the first night he wasn't on yeah, at, the, agree. at the thing, right? Yeah. And then he came back better the second night. So I feel like there's a lot of people that are just wondering what's going to happen. Is he going to be on? Is he not going to be on? So I feel that it depend those guys are all great bodybuilders, but is it really all – it's predicated on, you know, the fuck up fairy. Yeah. And yeah. if that fuck up fairy comes or not the night before and sprinkles her magic dust to be able to really like make you hold water, stress you out, your cortisol spikes, or, or maybe you just had a bad prep because something happened. And I feel that what needs to happen is if 
it depends on who's peaking because everybody's so close mm-hmm. in that top 10, that possible top 10 yeah. that whoever's on is, can make really big strides because it's not like the Ronnie and Jay show anymore. It's not the Phil and Kai show. Definitely. And I feel like there's not, there's that dominance is no longer there. So yeah. therefore there's guys that are fourth, fifth, sixth right now that can jump to first, just depending on if they peak and some of the other guys don't, Yeah, that can happen because yeah. you don't have those placeholders like you used to. Yeah. I agree with that. When you're coaching so many great bodybuilders, how many, how many open guys do you have now? Just, just Hottie and Derek, if he moves up. Yeah, well, no, and then I then I also have um, Muhammad Fuda, my new. Um, he's out. Oh, he's in Dubai. very good too. Yes, so Muhammad Fuda, and he's and he just placed top five in his first pro show at in the Cairo after the Olympia. So he had a, he went up against about three other Olympians, and he placed top five in his first pro show. So he's going to be getting ready for a show this year to try to qualify for next year. I'm just going to show everybody really quickly uh, who he is because he is a he's got a phenomenal physique as well. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to find a good shot here, but this is you and him together. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. How, Muhammad. Yeah. How old is he? And he, he, God, he's in his late 20s. He's like 20, I think 27, 27. Yeah. He's, uh, 20. he's impressive. Yeah. Yeah. He's got a really good physique. He actually reminds me of you a little bit too. Like he's one of those guys that wants to go out and win and he's like very passionate. Yeah. Um, and he's like really a person that, uh, is, super intense he's, yeah. he's like an intense person he's like let's go coach let's go he, just tons of passion what do you do so the, the question i had for you is what do you do when you have a hottie and, and i'm sure a lot of people wonder this because i used to think about this with chad and with you and phil and mm-hmm. what do you do when you have hottie and derek if derek does the if derek does the open how does that it's work the same co- coaching wise this the same thing as i did with jay and phil okay but explain to people so, even me, like, tell me, how does that, you obviously have, I know parent, like you don't have a favorite, but mm-hmm. you'd be like at that, using that analogy or that uh, example, you'd been working with Phil for a number of years when all of a sudden you're working with Jay. Yeah. So how does that work for you emotionally? Are you still emotionally invested in Phil, even though you're trying to peak Jay, or is it just like you shut it all down and it's just X's and O's? It's X's and O's. You're trying to do exactly what's needed for that job you're trying to make sure that if somebody's peaking they need to get ready i remember with the year that jay tore his bicep yeah it was 2011 yeah and phil was right on yeah and he said go spend more time with jay because i'm perfect like dude my, my money you, you saw what i look like yeah. i'm just going to go eat and go have sleep and then I'm just wake up in a couple hours, come back and look at me. Yeah. But you need to go spend more time with Jay because you got to get his body right. Because I know that with the an tear and all yeah. of that, get injury. You know, he tore his bicep, and so a couple weeks before the show, and so that's exactly what happened. But all in all, what you're trying to do is you're trying to bring in everybody at their best and let the judges make the decision. What happens? Mm-hmm. I think all of these guys, whether it's Nick Walker, uh, Hunter Labrada, all of these guys. You, you, if you're working with anyone like that, you just want to bring everybody in their best. Mm-hmm. And then it doesn't matter. You don't, the name is secondary. You want to bring everybody in their best and let that person put in their work to be able to show how they've improved to be able to get to that goal of yeah. winning the show or placing as high as they can. So what you do is you really try to take that out of it. You just try to put your 
hundred percent your focus. And as long as you don't have too many people, and that's one of the reasons why I, for me, my system doesn't, it's not scalable like that. Sure. I can't, I can't work with a bunch of people. And I've had that opportunity where people have come to me at the Olympia and I felt like where I had to say, look, this is not going to work. I can't bring you on because it's going to take away. I already had Nicole. I had, you know, Phil or I had Jay, I had, you know, all these people. And I'm like, too many people is going to be overload. It's not going to work within the whole mechanism of my system, how I check people and look at them. Every four hours, I would, you know, look at somebody. Like they did two meals, maybe rest up, take a little nap and look at them during the last three days. And um, so you got to see how that's going to work within your system, but you want to give everybody a hundred percent. And then by the time they're on stage, if the top two, like when it happened in 2011, I basically started kind of like walking away from the stage because everyone's like, well, don't you want to see who's going to win? I said, no, <laughs> I don't care because yeah. I, you know, my guys are top two, yeah. right? I was, yeah. it was, it was a phenomenal day. I was super proud and super happy. But yeah. at the end of the day, I mean, Phil even felt bad a little bit, I think deep inside because Jay lost because he beat his yeah. friend. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, he started a legacy and he sure. went on a, a tear. But I think that when you look at it, whether it's Hottie, you know, with his type of physique, and then you have Derek with this type of, they got to just bring in their strengths and then let the judges do whatever it is. So if Derek does do end up doing open, then that's how it's going to be treated. It's no no different than Jay and Phil. Have you had conflicts amongst the athletes? Have you had an athlete come to you and say, well, "You're coaching him for the same show"? This is oh, of course, absolutely. Yeah. Like like way back in the day. Yes. Yeah, yeah. way back in that? the day. Um. Tell them to go fuck themselves. Too fucking bad. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Too, like, no, because I, I, it would be something like somebody had an issue to that degree. Yeah. That's, that's problematic. You're dealing with somebody like that's going to try to tell you who to work with or who not to work with. That means that they're not respecting you. And in the beginning, as you're building your name up, you have to kind of endure some things that you don't have to endure as you've become more established. I and I feel like I feel bad for those people coming up because they might have to endure some younger mentality instead of saying, I see, I understand. Okay. So if you're starting out and that happens to you, you're going to have to like eat some shit kind of. That's right. That's right. Because you're not going to have the name maybe or wherewithal to be able to say, go fuck off. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Um, but now they're going to say, well, what if he says me to go fuck off? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <They might. right. laughs> you know, so it's one of those things. Well, you know? honey, listen, man, I've had, uh, I've had fun talking to you for the last hour, a little bit over an hour. Um, is there anything, uh, you want to say a message you want to give out or anybody, anything you want to promote before we go? No, man, I just want to say, I appreciate the opportunity. It's been a long time. We've been talking about, you know, trying to get together congratulations on everything you've, you've achieved and you've accomplished. I'm very proud of you. Thank you. Um, and, um, you know, I just, I, every time I see that, I go, is that H for honey? Um, <laughs> <laughs> only, you would, only you would, only you would fucking say that. <laughs> I, I, you know, I got to just take those little jabs when I can. You don't talk as often as we should. <laughs> <That's> fucking funny. <laughs> yeah. So Hermes, or it's Hermes. It could be Hermes. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. But uh, yeah. But all, all in all, I just want to say thanks, and I, and I really feel that there needs to be a little bit more open discussion about educating young athletes out there, whether they're bikini bodybuilder, figure, all of these things, and not be so tied to thinking that solutions are on the bottom of the vial. I yeah. feel like the training, the nutrition, all of those boxes have to be checked before you get into there and ask multiple people. If you're a beginner and you're starting out, 
ask multiple people if these dosages, if you're kind of a little bit under, don't understand them properly, get some different perspective. And, you know, I think that's the best way to be able to go about it because at the end of the day, we love bodybuilding. We want people to be healthy at the end of the day, but we do know that there are some things that go along with this sport that we can't always control. But yeah, it's been fun, man. It's been fun. And again, don't take offense to what I said about difficulty. I really feel like it's oh, something don't. that I'm glad. Yeah, don't don't Listen, do that. I know, I know who I was. <laughs> I, know, I, know, <laughs> I know how fucking insane I was when I was competing. Trust me. It's it's I don't take any offense to it at all. Because like you said, there's a difference between lazy and difficult. Right. Yes. So uh, I'm totally fine with it. Um, when you were difficult, you just honestly you just overanalyze a bit. But yeah. I just think that it was a really good experience for me because there was unraveling that yeah. from you know prep to prep to worry man was Listen, good i'm not as sensitive as i used to be a little bit not as bad as i used to be. um <laughs> anyway listen let's uh let's do this again sometime either on your channel or mine yeah. and, yes uh, we'll i need to get up. you on man i gotta get you on the on the podcast i got a yeah. lot of stuff that i want to go over with you at some point too and uh say hi to summer i don't know what you're gonna ask me you can't get me in trouble let's <laughs> no no <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what you're even alluding to. I don't know either. I'm just, I know something's going to come up. Anyways. Um, okay, honey. Yeah. I had a lot of fun, dude. Yeah. Let's do it again. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, brother. We'll talk. Thanks for watching. Please subscribe, share with your friends, and like the video. And if you get a chance, check out the description for all the different links to all the different places you can find Hostile and myself. And lastly, check out Hostile.com for our new line of supplements and all of our apparel and gear. Thanks again for watching.